Gracious God, we have come here today and we have confessed that we do not have our lives together. And on our own, we cannot get them together. We are poor and we are hungry and thirsty for things that we cannot do on our own. And even as we have confessed our needs and our brokenness and our longings, we get to confess this truth, that you, Jesus, died in solidarity with us. You entered into our suffering and our pain so that we would not be alone. In this death, you declare to us that we belong to you. We are your children, and we belong to each other. We are a family. So even in the midst of this Easter season, as we celebrate your victory over death and sin and destruction, we also recognize that because of our diversity, we bring a multitude of different stories with us into service tonight. Some of us are still deep in the midst of our very own Good Friday, where we face rejection and failure and disappointment and even death. Some of us are waiting in silence, like that deafening silence on Holy Saturday. We wait in confusion and pain and longing. We ask, God, that your presence would invade these spaces of pain and longing, that you would assure us through your word, through your presence, and through one another that we are not alone, that you are Emmanuel, the with us God. And God, we are grateful for the many stories of resurrection that sit among us tonight. We ask that you would amplify their voices and their stories that they would proclaim your goodness and kindness, and we ask that they would be a living reminder to the rest of us that you are in the business of making all things new, even and most especially us. We ask that their lives and their stories would be a testament to the truth that Frederick Buechner says, the worst thing is never the last thing. We ask that, Pastor, that you would be with Pastor Mikhail as she comes to proclaim really good news tonight and invites us to this table where we are reminded in a very real and tangible way your solidarity with us in death and in life. We love you, God. Amen. Good evening. My name is Mikhail, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here as well. And I am here, though, um, mostly because I found something really good. So uh, we will uh, read scripture together in just a few moments, and our ushers have Bibles for us. If you'd like one, just lift your hand. We have Bibles in English and in Spanish, if that is your heart language or if you're practicing Spanish. Uh, You're free to take one if you don't have one or just read it while you're here. If you have a Bible on a screen, that's fine too. Whatever you choose, if you'd like to turn with me, we will read out of John 21, and as you're getting there, just for anyone who, you know, reads the entire worship folder, if there are some of you that do that, I just want to put you at ease and let you know that there was a typo, and my sermon is not about revisiting failure. It's about resurrecting failure, okay? It's a little different. Not exactly sure how that happened, but in case you're just bracing yourself, you can relax a little bit. Would you stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word in John chapter 21? 
Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellas, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught. Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And so we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. This story is so rich, it was hard to pick apart what exactly I could cover in 25 minutes. So you'll have to bear with me if the pressing question on your mind doesn't get answered in this time together. But I think one of the things that helps us is if we look back a little further throughout the story that John tells... And we get a really clear picture of this Peter guy and his relationship with Jesus. He was a fisherman by trade. 
he grew up in the same region as Jesus, known as the Galilee, and he was fishing there in that sea for most of his life. His brother Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, and Andrew got a tip from John the Baptist that Jesus was the guy to follow, and so Andrew told his brother, and they started following after Jesus. The first time Jesus met Simon, his given name, Jesus said, you will be called the rock, Cephas, or Peter. As one of the 12, Peter witnessed Jesus turning water into wine, and he witnessed all the healings, and he witnessed feeding of 5,000 by tearing bread and fish apart. He was witness to amazing teachings and also the death threats. He expressed earnest and passionate belief and asked some of the best questions that give us some of Jesus' greatest answers. Once, when a a crowd of disciples left, Jesus said, are you all going to leave too? And, And Peter spoke up and said, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe And we know that you are the Holy One sent from God. When Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples knelt to wash Peter's feet, Peter said, no way. I'm not going to let you do that. That is below you. And instead, Jesus said, well, Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part of me. And in typical Peter fashion, he then says, okay, if that's what it means, then wash my whole body. I'm in. That very same night, Peter or Jesus again predicted his death, and Peter protested again. And he said, Jesus, I will go with you. I am ready. I will die for you. And Jesus said, Die for me. Peter, this very same night, you're going to betray me three times. You're going to say that you never even knew me. At Jesus' arrest later that night, I think Peter tries to prove himself that he is ready to die with Jesus and he takes up his sword and he cuts off an ear of the servant of a soldier who was there. And Jesus promptly puts the ear back on and says, this isn't what we're doing here, Peter. Peter follows at a distance and finds his way to the high priest's house where, Pete, where Jesus is being questioned for hours that night. He stands with servants as they ask him if he knows Jesus, and he denies three times to people who had no power, to people who were not even daring to torture him to get out information. He, just, he was just afraid. And yet, just a few days later, Peter was one of the two male disciples who ran to the tomb when Mary Magdalene first found it empty. And he was the only one bold enough to actually walk inside. Peter was present with the other disciples both times Jesus appeared in the upper room. And now here, maybe a week or two later, They go back to their home region of Galilee, and in the uncertainty of what to do next, what does resurrection have to do with our day-to-day life, what do we do? We, We know how to fish. And so Peter, 
still the leader of the group, invites people to go fishing, and they go. And in this final story of John's gospel, he includes so many details. And these details weave a rich and multi-layered story full of meaning and full of echoes of stories from many, many others' experiences that we know of Jesus. We, we kind of have echoes of the feeding of the 5,000 as Jesus takes apart bread and fish and passes it to hungry people. As Jesus is cooking breakfast, serving his friends, it's a little bit reminiscent of when Jesus got down and washed their feet. Um, we know of another circumstance, not necessarily in John's gospel, but when Peter impetuously leapt out of the boat to get to Jesus, trying to walk on water like Jesus did. And there's also stories of when Jesus um, helped a miraculous catch of fish early in their existence, early in their relationship too. And so for, for us who are reading, there's all of these layers of meaning in history, but how much more so layers of meaning and history for Peter. The first time Peter and Jesus met, it was not far from this shoreline near their hometowns. Throughout three years of ministry with Jesus, Jesus and his disciples traveled all around the towns along this little lake and traveled back and forth and back and forth a whole lot. I said little lake. It's not very little. (laughs) It's quite large. And when Peter fervently declared, we are with you, Jesus, where else would we go, Jesus? We're not going to abandon you, Jesus. It was along this same shoreline in one of the lakeside towns. And so I imagine that as, Jesus, as Peter is uh, getting to shore, after realizing that it's Jesus meeting them on the shoreline, there's all of these flood of happy emotions and memories that are coming back to him. And then all of a sudden, it's interrupted by the smell of a charcoal fire. You know that smell? Did you know that smells have a stronger link to memories and emotion than any other of our senses? That's why I can remember my grandmother's kitchen with precise detail when I smell Italian sausage and homemade sauce being simmered. It's why we can remember the words of our middle school coach when we smell fresh cut grass and rubber cleats mingled with a strong scent of sweat. (laughs) And then when we kind of walk by a familiar scent of perfume or cologne and we think of a person that we went on a date with once, that we'd rather not remember at all. (laughs) And the smell-memory connection is so strong that odors are some of the most uh, prominent triggers for those who are dealing with PTSD. A familiar scent can take them right back to reliving the trauma that they've experienced. Some of you in this room know exactly what I mean. And I think that Peter must have been terribly shaken when he arrived on that beach, soggy and excited to see his friend near their hometown, only to be taken back to the night that he'd been trying to forget about for weeks. 
The only other time a charcoal fire is mentioned in John's gospel is the fire outside the house of the high priest where the servants warmed themselves in the cold. It was the very same charcoal fire that Peter stood next to as he was asked three questions and denied knowing Jesus three times. Just a few hours before that night, that dreadful, humiliating, terrible night, Peter had made a grand promise that he was ready to die for Jesus. And in effect, Peter claimed that he loved Jesus the most, that perhaps he was ready to be the very best disciple that Jesus ever had. And I think, I think that this might be what Jesus is getting at when he asks a very blunt, seemingly insensitive question of Peter after breakfast. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I got to tell you, there are a bajillion opinions. That's a fact. There are a bajillion of them. A bajillion opinions as to what Jesus was comparing himself to. We could say, did Peter love Jesus more than he loved his friends? Did Peter love Jesus more than he loved fishing? Did Peter love Jesus more than the other disciples loved Jesus? There's a whole lot of hypotheses out there. But as I've studied and pondered and sat with this, I think Jesus is asking, Simon, do you still think you love me the most? Do you still think you're the best? And Peter's response is just as telling as Jesus' question. I think at another point, Peter would have said, I love you so much that I will... I love you the best because I can. And Jesus hears Peter say, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. No grandiose promises to prove his love, and certainly not pointing to past behavior, but trusting that Jesus knows him. And yet Jesus keeps asking the question, And it wasn't until the third question that Peter was hurt. And I got to be honest, I don't think that was accidental. I think this was Jesus' aim. Not to hurt Peter, but to get at the hurt. The whole setup Do you think that charcoal just magically arrived on the beach by itself? It's not a naturally occurring phenomenon on the beach of Galilee. Jesus is intentional from start to finish. Let's get to the hurt. Let's not pretend that we might possibly be able to talk about anything else. Let's make sure that we both know what we're dealing with here. But not in a tone of shame, but in a tone of 
great love. We often assume, I think, that God needs perfect. God needs the best. God needs the smartest. God needs the bravest. God needs larger than life. God needs the extra disciple. And like Peter, I think we often work really hard to put on our best show. The bravado, the promises, the right answers, the brave face. I will gladly shout out who you are, Jesus. I know all the right answers. Jesus, if you can walk on water, I'm going to come out there too. I'm ready to die right now for you, Jesus. Let me at him. But eventually, the truth comes out. Peter can't keep those grandiose promises. And nor can we. We crumble under pressure. And we do the thing we said we'd never do. And the mask falls to the floor. And maybe for the first time we realize that we haven't even been talking to Jesus as our real self at all. But as the self we want to be. As the self we think he wants us to be. And it's not real and it's not possible. And for far too many of us, that story ends right there. We're buried up in shame. We're embarrassed that we aren't who we want to be or who others want to be. Or maybe we're embarrassed because we are not even who we thought we were. And this becomes our tomb. And we may never get out. Even among people who are marked by this thing, miraculous thing called resurrection, even among us, failure all too often has the final word. But friends, what else is failure other than a kind of death? When we fail, our hopes and dreams may die. Our promises die. And sometimes even parts of our identity die. But what is it again that we celebrate in Easter? Isn't it something about that death is not the end? (laughs) That death actually gives way to a whole new kind of life? And so could it be maybe that for us whose failures have killed something, for us whose failures have maybe even killed off a fake identity of a flawless disciple, could it be that there might be a new and more true identity that rises up? A resurrection? Since the beginning of this year, I've been reading a short but profound little book by David Benner called The Gift of Being Yourself. And if you picked it up, you'll be like, why have you been reading this for five months? Um, it's very small, but it's, it's not... 
the length that takes time to get through. It's the content. He talks about the journey of being whole, becoming an authentic person. He talks about a journey that is found only in the connected pursuit of knowing God and knowing ourselves. And he says this, I'm convinced that God loves each and every one of us with depth, persistence, and intensity beyond imagination. But even more remarkable is that God's love for you has nothing to do with your behavior. And he says, the self that God persistently loves is not my prettied up self, not my pretend self, but my actual self, the real me. But our problem, as Benner describes it, is that we are so well versed in faking it till we make it that it might be hard for us to even know the real me apart from the pretty up pretend me. And I think this helps me understand Peter's bravado and super disciple persona, and not just Peter's. Because we are so often entrenched in this performance mentality, it can be really hard to shake loose, even when we know all the right answers in our head. God does not love us because of our behavior, but as long as our behavior seems up to par, we can lie to ourselves and believe that it's somehow connected. And so it often requires failure. Our failure in behavior to convince us of the fact that we're loved regardless of what we do. Failure, or we could say it another way, recognizing our sin, is actually our greatest pathway to grace. It opens our eyes to see the truth that has been true all along. I think I can recognize that this is what's happening in Peter's journey because I know this is how it happened for me. During my junior year of college, at the ripe old age of 21, I had a profound encounter with failure that was one of the forces for change in my life. Up till that point, I had always been generally good. I followed pretty much most of the rules, and I could talk myself out of the ones that I didn't want to follow. I had been able to make most of the people like me pretty well, peers and adults alike, and the ones who didn't, again, I didn't much care for them anyway. I may have been slightly egocentric in my younger years. And at that stage in my life, I was exploring my call to ministry, and I was learning to recognize my gifts of study and teaching and caring for people and some of my passions. I had a lot of friends. And I took pride in being a really good friend for others. There was this amazing man who was in love with me, and I really wanted to be as good as he thought I was. We'd been friends since we were kids, and we took what felt like a huge risk to date over long distance, just a few months before this experience. And it was late in the school year when I went to visit friends at a neighboring university, on the same weekend that he had 
a really significant major event going on halfway across the country. We couldn't talk all day due to his event and the time difference, and we made plans to talk that night. He had told me how important it would be for him to talk to me about this experience, especially if the event didn't go well. And I promised I would be available whenever he called. But, you can probably tell, I was not available. Because I didn't want to be the lame girl that was sitting at home waiting for my boyfriend to call from halfway across the United States. So I joined a friend at a party for a little bit before he called. But the little bit stretched into a longer bit. And then on to a second party. And I completely lost track of time. Honestly, losing track of time, probably aided greatly by the refreshments that were being served at these parties. And by the time I realized that I had missed the whole thing, I had several missed calls and a voicemail telling me that the event indeed went really badly. And could I please call soon? By the time I got the voicemail, he was asleep, even with the time change. In his book, David Benner made a statement about himself that I completely resonate with. He said, those of us who really need to be successful are tempted toward deceit, but not necessarily because we're liars. It's simply that our profound fear of failure lends us to be good at putting the best possible spin on things, and consequently we are never quite as healthy or competent or successful or whatever else we value as we may appear. And that had been my habit. But there was no way to put a good spin on this one. I didn't keep my promise. I didn't even try. I wasn't as good as I looked. I wasn't as good as I wanted to be. I wasn't as good as I should have been. I was not as good as this good man deserved. And I hated myself. I remember so well sitting in my car talking to him on the phone the next day, tears streaming down my face. And after a long pause in conversation, I braced myself. I knew it was coming. I knew he was about to break up with me. I knew I would not only lose a boyfriend, but a best friend for years. But instead, Brent said through his own tears, I just really want to marry you. And I was flabbergasted. And I wept all the more. I couldn't say anything for a while. I couldn't understand it. I had failed him. I had just proven to him and to myself that I was not as good as he thought I was. And so how could he trust me to be his wife ever after this? For more than 20 years, Brent and I have been either friends or dating or married. And in that time, we've taken turns getting to speak the words of God to one another. And on that day, it was his turn. 
His words of love, of honesty, of forgiveness and trust resonated with me on an even deeper level than our relationship. Because as he spoke, I recognized another force of love at work. One that had been trying to get my attention for a long time. I recognized that the far surpassing love of the only one who does not fail gently was helping me to see who I had been all along. An imperfect person who is worthy of love regardless of her performance. And I can now look back and see that what happened in those moments was the beginning of a significant transformation in my life. So when I imagine the conversation on the beach between Peter and his dear friend Jesus, I have this whole constellation of emotions and memories connected to it. It feels familiar to me. It's the pain beauty of being known and loved. It's uncomfortable. There's stuff there that you really wish wasn't there. But at the very same time, there's freedom and there's healing because all the fear and shame of failing have lost their sharp edges. And even through tears, it feels like maybe you can actually start breathing again. And I think there is a beautiful kind of humility that comes from experiencing love in the midst of failure like this. Thomas Merton, who was a Trappist monk and profound spiritual writer of the past century, said that humility consists in being precisely the person you actually are before God. Not hiding behind the pretty painted picture, Not buried in the tomb of shame, but honest and free. Failures and gifts and all right out there in the open. And I'm pretty sure this is why Jesus invites Peter to join his own work. The work of the good shepherd. In this very moment. It is not the bravado Peter that Jesus is asking to do this work. Nor is it the bravado, super disciple, bravest, strongest Peter who is responding. That Peter, that Peter would have been a terrible shepherd. No one clamoring to be the best and the bravest and the brightest and the strongest volunteers to feed sheep. That's a terrible job. But this Peter, this real Humble, loved, known, forgiven, out of hiding, joyful Peter. This Peter will make an excellent shepherd. And to sum it all up, Jesus says two words at the very end that he said at the very beginning. Follow me. The first time Jesus spoke those words, Peter had very little idea what they meant, even though he may have thought that he knew. But on this beach, after all that has transpired, these are not words of hypothetical aspiration. Come follow me and we'll see what happens. But these are words 
of confident and knowing hope. Follow me, Peter, into caring for people so much that you give yourself away. Follow me, Peter, into really feeding people. Follow me, Peter, into forgiveness, even forgiving those who betray you. Follow me into death, Peter, and follow me into resurrection. Nadia Boltzweber tells a story in her book, Accidental Saints, about when she went to preach before a crowd of thousands of high school students for a national Lutheran gathering. If you don't know who Nadia Boltzweber is, this is her. And part of her story she told to that crowd, and I want to share with you. I told my story, she said, a girl who didn't fit, raised fundamentalist Christian, left church, entered addiction, got clean, met nice Lutheran boy, became Lutheran, became Lutheran pastor, started a church. Short synopsis. As some of your parents and pastors were really upset that I was your speaker tonight, Nadia said, they thought someone with my past shouldn't be allowed to talk to thousands of teenagers. And you know what I have to say about that? They're absolutely right. Somebody with my past of alcoholism and drug abuse and promiscuity and lying and stealing shouldn't be allowed to talk to you. But you know what? Somebody with my present, who I am now, shouldn't be allowed to either because I am sarcastic, heavily tattooed, and I'm an angry person who swears like a truck driver. (laughs) I'm a flawed person who really should not be allowed to talk to you, but you know what? That's the God we're dealing with, people. She went on to say that this is a God who has always used imperfect people, that this is a God who walked among us and who ate with all the wrong people and kissed leopards. I told them that this was a God who rose from the dead and grilled fish on the beach with his friends and then ascended into heaven and especially present to us in the most offensively ordinary things like wheat and water and wine and words. And I told them that God has never made sense. And you don't need to either, I said. Because this God will use you. This God will use all of you. And not just your strengths, but your failures and your failings. Your weakness is fertile ground for a forgiving God to make something new and make something beautiful. So don't ever think that all you have to offer are just your gifts. And I would say to you, friends, that I think this is exactly what it means to be Christian. I think this is exactly what we celebrate every time we come to this table. That we don't have our lives together. And on our own, we can't get them together. So what's the use in trying to pretend that we can God invites us to come so that he can do for us what we cannot. We celebrate that Jesus doesn't ask us to cook for him, but he prepares a meal for us, like the breakfast he cooked for his friends on the beach. And every time we eat this bread and drink this juice, we remember that things that feel so awfully final 
like failure and like death itself. These things do not have the final word. But we don't just remember these things at Jesus' table. We actually get to experience them. Because we are invited here as our very real selves, not the prettied up versions, so that we can offer our own dyings, our own failures, and receive miraculous new life in their place. Something that we cannot do, but he does. And so in a moment, I will invite you to come out your aisle toward the left and approach one of these servers with your hands cupped. And that's an important part because this is not something that we take or make for ourselves, but something that we receive. Listen to the words that the servers have to say to you. Receive the bread and dip it into the cup. And know that even though I may be the one extending this invitation to you at this moment, this is certainly not my table. And it is not the 8th Street Church's table, nor is it a table of the Church of the Nazarene. This is Jesus' table. And Jesus has said that all who are ready to receive what he gives here are invited here. And so because of that, our bread is gluten-free and our cup is non-alcoholic because we want everyone who wants to come to be able to come. Just a few hours before Jesus was betrayed by two of his closest friends, he ate a meal with his disciples. He broke the bread and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which was broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine and he passed it to them and said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Would you pray with me? So we ask, Lord, that you would make holy the bread and the juice before us. Use it to feed us to heal us and remind us of that which is true. We ask that your grace would grow in us and make new in us as we receive what you have prepared. Amen. Friends, when you are ready, you may come.